You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romaine Bostick, Taylor Riggs and Joe Weisenthal. What You Miss is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Amid the greater push for racial equity we've seen worldwide, one of the biggest targets for swift, concrete change in the corporate world has been company boards. Despite years of pushes to diversify corporate boards, the goal has remained largely a work in progress. Harvard Law School commissioned a study on the issue, finding that in 2004, 83% of board seats for the Fortune 100 companies were held by men, with just 17% held by women and only 15% held by minorities. As of 2018, those numbers were then improved, but only very slightly. Still a long way to go, with men maintaining 75% of seats, while representation of women and minorities had grown to just 25 and 20% respectively. In its own recent push for greater diversity, Shake Shack, the fast-casual burger chain founded by restaurateur Danny Meyer, elected Tristan Walker to its board of directors. Walker is the founder and CEO of Walker & Company Brands, a maker of health and beauty products for people of colour, which is now a wholly-owned subsidiary of consumer giant Procter & Gamble. Walker is also the founder and board chairman of Code 2040 and a member of the board of directors of Fort Locker. He joined us to talk about diversifying boards and his experience as an African-American founder and executive in Silicon Valley. We started by asking him, well, if we're starting to see real change here. I'd like to hope so. Um, you know, the one thing, you know, when I think about Foot Locker and Shake Shack, I'm incredibly blessed um, to have the opportunity, uh, not only as a black man, but a young black man, um, kind of with the experience uh, that I have. You know, my diversity cuts a multitude of ways. Um, And I'm so blessed to partner with an organization or two organizations that really do believe that. Um, Kind of in the previous segment, um, you kind of heard from the Goldman CEO, you know, we can't do it ourselves. Uh, I think that there are kind of organizations that have influence to push this initiative forward. um, And it's a rising tide uh, lifts all boats opportunity. And I'm excited to see some of the momentum that we've seen recently, uh, particularly as it relates to board diversity. And Tristan, you can't do it alone, and of course you are on other boards as well, but at least in this talks with Shake Shack, is this a good right step, even though it may not feel like enough? Absolutely. I mean, when I think about my own career progression, I've tried to focus on really three things that matter fairly consistently. Um, first, really the, the impact of the demographic shift happening in this country. Uh, you know, folks of color are not only the majority of the world, but will be the majority of this country in 20 to 30 years. And when we consider their cultural influence and impact, 
um, you know, organizations really do need to respect that. Secondly, you know, I think about brands being a force for good in the world, serving this kind of growing consumer. Um, and then lastly, the influence of technology, not only on these businesses, but also this consumer as well. And when I think about the corporations of the future, the ones that will lead us into the future, uh, it are the ones who are going to really be embracing those three things um, in, in its fullest extent. Um, and folks like Foot Locker, Shake Shack, Procter & Gamble, where I am, and Walker and & Company are really leading the way in that regard. So when we talk about those companies, Tristan, I mean, these are largely companies so far that cater primarily to either a black consumer or uh, at least a non-white consumer. Uh, there's been a pathway for success there. When you look at other entrepreneurs your age or below who are coming up with ideas, is the pathway primarily limited to catering to a black or non-white consumer, or is there maybe a broader opportunity there for some of these founders uh, to do something that everyone will embrace? Frankly, it is the opportunity, right? Uh, when I started Walker & Company, um, you know, the first thing that folks would ask is, you know, um, how niche is this opportunity? Uh, and when I'd say folks of color, the majority of the world, uh, and will be the majority of this country in 20, 30 years, eyes get wide. Um, and, you know, something is foundational and fundamental um, in having that understanding, not only um, kind of the size of uh, kind of consumer audience, but also this is the most culturally influential demographic group on the planet. If you are serving consumers, you need to respect their needs in a way that they deserve to be served. Um, and as I said earlier, the corporations of the future, whether you are an existing Fortune 500 today uh, or a burgeoning founder, this is the opportunity you need to be focusing on. Um, because if you're not focusing on the majority of the world, to whom are you focusing? Tristan, we've said it time and again the statistics aren't good enough. We've got but four people of color in terms of leading Fortune 500 businesses. The C-suite is not full enough. Neither are boards. But when I sort of jovially say that your phone must be ringing off the hook, it's an issue because you have such a great set of backgrounds. Of course, not only were entrepreneur in residence Andreessen Horowitz, you have been a CEO of a business, you're a board member. How do companies look to expand the pool of people they're calling and make the leap that perhaps they don't need to have served on a board before? They don't need to have been a CEO of such a stellar company such as Walker & Company, but they still have expertise, diverse viewpoints that they can bring to the table and be the right fit for that particular board or that particular C-suite. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's the, it's the first time I've ever been asked it, and I've been waiting for somebody to, to ask that question because this is really an important nuance. I have to respect and acknowledge my own privilege. You know, um, certainly I grew up, um, you know, with difficulty, right, um, kind of in the environment that I did, but I've had the good fortune to go to a boarding school on full scholarship. I graduated from Stanford Graduate School of Business. I've had wonderful opportunities at places like Andreessen and Horowitz. I've raised money for my own company, and now I sit on these boards. I am not the only one, right? Uh, and I do my damnedest uh, to tell a lot of these organizations that I am not. Um, and I think it is my duty um, in some of the roles that I have, um, whether it be on these board seats uh, or in times like this where I can articulate what the full need is, it's to not only express that privilege, but to show that um, there are other folks out there that deserve these same opportunities. I am incredibly blessed to have these opportunities. I've been fortunate to align myself thematically uh, with brands that kind of fit with the values that I do have, and it does kind of look outsized. Um, but now it's my time, and I've been consistently trying to do this over the past decade as I've articulated this push towards 
um, kind of more diversity in boards and corporations to do the work, right? Um, and other corporations with me need to do the work uh, in the same way that folks like Foot Locker and Shake Shack have done. So I'm very glad that you, you asked that question because it is so, so important um, that I not be the only call. So, well, Tristan, then I want to touch on then some of your, uh, I guess, part of your childhood. I once saw an interview with you where you talked about going to Hotchkiss, uh, which uh, for those folks who don't know, it's a, a pretty prestigious uh, school here uh, in, in New York area. And you talked about how that was the first time you really got to see how the other half lived. That's and you right. came from a neighborhood where uh, you didn't have a lot of prosperity, but you got to see that going to school with those kids, those kids of privilege. So for those folks who maybe aren't born into uh, wealth, aren't born into a stable environment, how do they get a chance to see that how the other half lives so that they can then make decisions for themselves that are maybe a little bit more productive? That's a great question. I think you don't have to see how the other half lives. You have to believe in yourself. You know, it took me 30 years to recognize um, that I only needed to do the things that were in line with my own personal values. Every single decision that I make, every single thing that I do is in line with six values that I have and my company does. Courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, loyalty. It was really critical for me to define those things, right? So when I'm looking at things like Shake Shack, when I'm looking at things like Foot Locker, when I'm looking at starting a company like Walker & Company, I'm able to do the thing that I feel is not only meaningful for the world, but meaningful for me. Um, and the only thing that I think my experience at that boarding school taught me was that wealth exists. Right? Uh, yeah. That was something that I just had no perspective on. And when I got to understand the importance of name and last name, it just encouraged me um, to have a name that matters for my sons, too. Um, but I'm going to teach them everything that I've learned for myself about values and hopefully much earlier than uh, for them uh, than I had to wait for myself. Yeah. Tristan, we've had the good fortune to speak with some wonderful founders of color on this program. We've spoken to luxury designers such as Carly Cushney, other tech entrepreneurs such as Jessica Matthews, such as James Norman. All of them have said how much harder it was for them to prove to venture funds, to people with the money, that they're worthy of that ticket, of that they had to prove revenue more than perhaps a white co-founder might have done. How are you finding Silicon Valley responding to this moment and venture capital responding to this moment? I think there's inevitability to it. Um, you know, if you believe um, that as a venture capitalist investor, you want to invest in some, someone who has a blue ocean opportunity, right, uh, focused on a consumer um, that is willing to engage with brands that matter, this is a consumer. Right? It's unfortunate um, that it's taken um, kind of um, uh, issues of the past few weeks uh, to really open the eyes of a broader audience. And, you know, this is not new. <laughs> um, you know, I've been on interviews with Bloomberg for the past decade, uh, very thankfully, uh, and it's kind of a wonderful platform to do it. Um, we were talking about the same things 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, and it's my hope um, that it changes now, um, but we can't wait for that change. Um, so when I think about, um, you know, not waiting for the other half, right, uh, who lived in an experience that you did not, understanding the values that you have uh, for yourself and creating impact, the time for us is now, and we can't wait for them to catch up with what we know already to be true, that our impact matters. So, Tristan, about your company, Walker Company, the company that most people know you for, obviously the Bevel uh, brand of blades most, was most men know you for. Um, of course, you are now under the umbrella uh, of P&G. And I'm wondering, when you decided to sort of make this switch, where you sort of put your company under the umbrella of a larger uh, 
conglomerate like that. Did you have any reservations about the idea that maybe uh, instead of being independent and going along and building your business as sort of a, I, I guess, solo black owned company, that there would maybe limit your opportunities or would sort of steer the opportunities that you have in a way that maybe you didn't envision? That's a great question. I mean, as a part of the deal, um, you know, we needed to maintain our autonomy, right? So I am still the CEO of Walker and Company. I don't have a Procter Gamble email address, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, it was a, a, a conversation that I think they believed in too. It was important um, that our consumers, our people um, knew that we were going to maintain our own authenticity. Um, and Procter and Gamble wanted to set Walker and Company up in a way that it can still exist 150 years from now. Um, so, you know, we work diligently um, to ensure our own autonomy while leveraging kind of what has made Procter and Gamble great over the past 180 years research and development, right? Uh, go to market, um, distribution. Um, and we have found those synergies in, in a big way. We are in 15 times the number of doors that we were in 18 months ago. Yeah. We've launched two times the amount of products that we did uh, versus 18 months ago. So I think we figured out the formula. I didn't have much reservation because I knew I found the company that uh, kind of had a value set that matched. As we continued our conversations about diversity and inclusion in corporate America, we also spoke with Tina Chen, the president and CEO of Time's Up Now and the Time's Up Foundation, which works to combat harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Prior to this, Chen served as an assistant to President Obama, executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls, and as chief of staff to former First Lady Michelle Obama. We started by asking Chen how the mission of Time's Up Now has expanded beyond workplace sexual harassment in the wake of the Me Too movement to include a broader push for diversity and inclusion in the workplace and hold companies accountable. You know, we were grown created out of the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein articles and women coming together realizing they weren't alone and how prevalent sexual harassment was in the workplace. And our first initiative was to create the Times of Legal Defense Fund to provide unprecedented amounts of legal and PR support to survivors of sexual harassment in the workplace coming forward. But, you know, we didn't want to just deal with the aftermath, you know, pick up the pieces afterwards. We wanted to keep sexual harassment from happening in the first place. I mean, that's the real goal. We want safe, fair, and dignified work for women and for men in the workplace. And to do that, the real issue is you've got to create better workplace culture. So that means not only workplace cultures that are addressing sexual harassment, but that are addressing things like diversity, inclusion, preventing microaggressions from happening, making sure we have fair pay and promotion, making sure we have things like equal pay. You know, if you don't value your workers in their entire sense, then you are going to then victimize them and, you know, make them victims of sexual harassment and other abuses in the workplace. So that's why we've really been working now on this broader mission of safe, fair and dignified work for everyone. And to that mission, Tina, you have the Time's Up Guide to Equity and Inclusion During Crisis. It's sort of a practical guide how many a company and many a business leader right now is looking at their workforce, under, trying to understand how they can better serve their stakeholders, whether they be employees, their customers, and indeed their shareholders. Talk to us a little bit about the immediate practical uses, ways and means they can drive more inclusion, more diversity within their businesses. 
No, absolutely. You know, the guide was created um, actually by soliciting input from over, you know, two dozen um, companies, you know, um, diversity and inclusion experts in those companies. They represent about 700,000 employees in total across multiple industries. And we try to put the best learning into these practical guides. It's the first edition. We plan to keep iterating it. You know, it started looking, obviously, at the pandemic and coming back and some basic, simple safety things like if you're going to do social distancing in the workplace, think about when you're moving your desk six feet apart, who's going to move off the C-suite floor now? If you can only have 10 people in a meeting, um, you know, who's getting excluded? Who might otherwise, like a young, you know, person coming in who is just learning the business who might be able to just listen in to learn. You know, we're going to lose those opportunities to bring people along in our workplaces. Um, but it also applies in the current moment and what we've seen in the last three weeks in this really awakening and reckoning that's happening in our country around anti-racial efforts. And, you know, it's things like recognizing that black and brown employees both have experienced the pandemic differently, you know, have experienced their own life histories as differently, are experiencing your workplace differently. So how can you address those? How can you lead with empathy as a leader of a business? How can you stop and listen to your employees, have the courage to listen to them, have the courage to speak out, even if you're not sure exactly what to say? Being silent isn't the thing to do right now. You need to say something. Don't be afraid of saying the wrong thing. If you say the wrong thing, apologize and come back, but make sure your employees know that you care about their entire life experience and you want them to succeed in your workplace. It's interesting. I was reading an article from our Bloomberg opinion page called "His Work Has Moved Home, So Has Harassment, where it seems like it wasn't just in the actual workplace, but maybe through email and some of the chats and the messaging that we're doing as well. What is the best way to stop it as we've all moved home, but then the harassment has continued in many cases? Well, this is really hard for managers, I have to say, because it is absolutely true. Harassment has continued. It happens on Zoom calls. It happens in emails and chats. It can actually increase because of the anonymity, right, of texting and doing emails. Um, and it gets harder for managers because it's more invisible to you. So I think it's, number one, you know, have a place where your employees feel safe reporting and making sure there are multiple places, not just to their manager, not just to HR. Maybe you have an anonymous tip line, maybe you have an outside counsel's office, make sure you have multiple places that people can go, you know, to feel safe, you know, in reporting. Um, pay attention to what's happening. If someone's all of a sudden gotten a little more quiet in their engagement with you, check in with your um, employees constantly, especially now when the stresses of, you know, not just harassment, but the stresses of what are happening at home, people dealing with no childcare and no school and no summer camps and trying to balance work, check in with them often. And then, you know, watch for what happens on Zoom calls. You know, there's sort of microaggressions, the talking over people, the belittling people, uh, you know, can happen, you know, in a Zoom environment as well. Diversity, of course, Tina, has many guises, and we think about it not only in terms of your ethnicity, not only your gender, not only your age, but also your sexuality. And I think that we need to remember it's Pride Month, too. Talk to us about some of the... This is a time where we're seeing the Supreme Court of America driving forward real change here in terms of acknowledging that diversity and making sure that there is a drive forward for equality. How is that something that Time's Up Now is looking at as well? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, we, one of the things I'm so proud of about Time's Up is since our founding, you know, we were intersectional in our approach, you know, not, you know, all women, right? Women, women of color, transgender, LGBTQ, but, you know, the 
kinds of workplaces we are working for are ones that are also are inclusive of our disabled workers, are inclusive of older workers, of inclusive LGBTQIA plus workers. Absolutely. I mean, really, businesses are going to benefit when you can tap all of the talent in our country, when you can really allow people to make the most of their talents for you. You know, when you do that in these economic times that are tough, and I realize that for business, but here's the secret. If you invest in your workers, they will invest in you. They will stay with you so you don't have to retrain new people when times are tough. You know, they will be more efficient. They will be more productive. Um, I remember when we were in the White House, there was a small business roundtable we had to, with small business to say, how do you invest when you're a small business in your workers? And I'm always struck one restaurant work, you know, woman, you know, she owned a restaurant in San Francisco. And she said, look, I can't afford not to. I haven't had to replace a restaurant worker in my restaurant in 11 years. You know, I give them incredible benefits. And guess what? I don't have any employee theft. I don't have employee you know, mishaps. I'm not getting OSHA violations filed because my employees are invested in, as invested in my business as I am, and it's making my business more resilient and more successful. Tina, I mean, we've seen some progress, obviously, on a lot of these issues that you've just been talking about. And obviously, in this moment today, sparked uh, potentially by uh, the George Floyd killing uh, three weeks ago, you've seen a lot of companies sort of uh, embrace it, at least for now. Of course, that's also against the backdrop uh, of an administration that, uh, for the last three and a half years, has at times been hostile to some of that progress. I'm wondering whether you think some of the changes that we're seeing at the corporate level, and even, I guess, on an individual level, are going to be lasting, and that that is then going to trickle down into sort of a more broad-based, uh, I guess, level of support amongst this nation? Well, I hope so. Um, I mean, I think what you're seeing is something a lot of us have been talking about for a while, you know, that this millennial generation, which is now the largest generation you know, in our workforce, in our buying, consuming public, cares about values, right? It, they care about the values of the companies that they're going to work for, the companies that they're buying goods and services from. You're seeing it now. They care about the values on in their cities. And that's what we're seeing play out on the streets of America right now. And I think that's not going to go away. You know, they're still going to be caring about that. Um, and you see it in all the advertising companies are doing now. They want to capture those value-based consumers. That's going to drive companies to, in their own self-interest, dig deep and really live out their values. Because here's the other thing about this generation. They are looking for more than just words. They are looking for more than just a statement. So that means companies need to look internally. And I've been talking to a lot of company CEOs in the last several weeks yeah. on how can we do better? How can we really address anti-racism, anti-sexism sexism in our workplaces? Hmm. You've yeah. got to really address it with your own employees. Take a hard look at the composition of your leadership, the composition of your board, the composition of your hiring processes. How can you get better and be more inclusive? How can you do the training that you need to? Um, and then really invest also in your in your communities. This yeah. is a time when companies can, you know, contract with, you know, bring your suppliers in, make sure they're diverse, right? Invest in some of the communities that have been hardest hit by the pandemic or by, you know, some of the protests that have been happening out in the streets. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management 
to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This week, in an effort to eliminate its carbon footprint, Amazon announced it was investing $2 billion in sustainable and decarbonizing technologies. The Climate Pledge Fund plans to make bets in a broad range of industries, from transportation and manufacturing to energy generation and agriculture. We spoke about it with Amazon's Head of Worldwide Sustainability, Cara Hurst, and started by asking her where exactly the money is being focused and what sort of change they think they can drive and how quickly. We're very excited about the launch of the Climate Pledge Fund today. And really, um, this is spurred by our commitment to the Climate Pledge itself, which is a commitment to uh, achieve net zero carbon by 2040. And we're going to focus on technologies and products and services where we believe will have the biggest impact for us in being able to decarbonize our operations. So you already mentioned some of those, which are transportation and logistics, but we will look at a broad array of products and industries um, across some of those other building materials or fuels or uh, agricultural um, solutions. So what's the challenge here, though, Kara? I mean, when you look at a company like Amazon, obviously a uh, big logistics company, big transportation is a big component of uh, how you get uh, all of these packages uh, to people like me and Caroline. And I'm just wondering that as the company continues to grow, you continue to sell more goods, how do you get to a level where you can actually reduce that carbon footprint while still growing uh, at some of the growth metrics that uh, investors expect you to continue at? Yeah, absolutely. We're, um, you know, this is the opportunity we have in front of us, which is to use our scale for good. So as we continue to grow, um, we're going to innovate and look across our company and find ways to decarbonize. And it's one of the reasons that we, um, for a number of years, invested in building internal systems and data collection metrics, mechanisms to be able to understand the business really more fully and to give our operators and our business leaders information so that as they're making those decisions about how to grow the business, where to invest, how to grow fleet, um, they can make them in a way that's more sustainable. Cara, talk to me about the business model behind all of this, how you plan to make money when you're investing in these startups, maybe they work out. Do you plan then to one day roll them up into your vertical integration structure? Yeah, well, very early days. So we're just launching today and we expect that, you know, we'll make investments across, you know, different amounts and in different stages of the companies um, that we partner with. And so those could be investments on, you know, um, on different levels. And I think we're just mostly interested in making bets that we feel like will have a huge impact on both Amazon's ability to decarbonize, but really um, other companies as well who continue to commit to the pledge and come into that community um, and, and in the broader world. So mm. I, I don't think right now we're focused on what the returns will be or, um, you know, what what our expectations are other than on impact. So we're mainly focused on obviously a, a diligence around those investments, but on the decarbonizing potential. As head of sustainability, how much more complex, and it's in such a complex and aggressive targets that you've set yourself, how much more difficult has it become in the age of COVID? I, I just look around me, 
mm, single-use plastics have become front and centre mm. once again, and this was something we were pulling back on. You were suddenly seeing so many more packages being sent out, I'm sure. How, how are you tackling this at Amazon? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there's both um, things that we're learning in this moment and things that we've always been doing that we'll continue to stay the path on. So packaging for us, as an example, we've been investing in more sustainable packaging solutions, eliminating waste in our packaging materials for well over a decade. Um, we've taken out over you know, the last several years about 33% of our packaging waste, which is a, a big number on our scale. Um, we've eliminated 1.5 billion overboxes. So we're doing those things anyway, which allow us to scale up and continue to really reduce the amount of packaging waste that a customer might receive when their order is delivered. Um, but we're also seeing you know, potential for innovation in our transportation and logistics. We're seeing um, people really lean into the moment of our interconnectedness and um, understand what the world looks like potentially when there's uh, cleaner air to breathe. So I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities and a really robust conversation people are having about how we want to come back out of this moment. Yeah, I mean, there's a conversation out there, Kara. I'm curious as to sort of the roots of uh, the current initiative here. Uh, there is a lot of reporting a couple of years ago about how uh, groups of Amazon employees that sort of push uh, the executive leadership there to do more on this particular topic. I'm also curious as to whether you're getting pushback or encouragement at all from the customer base uh, to do this or do the customers not really care as long as they get their package in you know a day or two I think our plans have been um, you know again in place for a number of years and so we started talking about net zero goals back in 2016 uh, we've had the packaging programs in place as I mentioned for well over a decade so for us this is staying the course but accelerating that pace um, one of the big motivations for us last year before we launched the pledge was looking at the science. The IPCC reporting that came out was alarming. Uh, and it really shook, I think, the sustainability community, the science community, and said, this is, um, we're on a clock now. This is no longer an option for us. So we saw the opportunity there to take action. And we have, uh, you know, many, many employees across the company who are excited about this and are motivated by it. And I think um, in large part, these constraints sometimes that we're putting on the company really drive really interesting innovations. Give me a little bit more insight into that, because analysts, at least on the street, love the investments that you're making in one day shipping. But then I'm getting a box every single day unless I go and say, you know what, I'll wait until I just get one box with all of my items, maybe at the end of the week. Is the onus on the customer, perhaps me, for example, instead of on you saying Amazon is going to wait and not ship all of your packages in individual boxes? Yeah, it's a great question because one of the things that we learned when we built this carbon system of record, which allowed us to go in and look at carbon impact of different modalities, meaning um, how we're delivering things, but also different options our customers are choosing. Um, I feel very strongly, and I think we do as a company, that we are always putting our, we're customer obsessed, we put the customer first, and we want to become a sustainable company on behalf of our customer. So I want that to be something that, that they have when they shop with Amazon, not necessarily that they would have to choose. Um, but what was interesting about finding uh, when we looked into the granularity of that data um, around the carbon system and how we're able to look at different ways packages are delivered, and it, it may seem counterintuitive, but the faster delivery speeds, 
um, that were enabled by some of the newer facilities in our transportation and logistics that we're building closer to the customers actually help us to lower carbon emissions. So speed in that case is a friend to sustainability where some of those um, same day or uh, quicker than same day, one, two hour uh, deliveries are actually our lowest carbon options. June has been one of the hottest months on record for public offerings, seeing the most action for IPOs in nearly two years. So we finished up the week with another executive taking his company public. Albertsons, the US grocery store chain with locations across the West and the South, had the potential to be one of the biggest IPOs of the year after a failed attempt five years ago. But the company emerged from 14 years of private ownership by Cerberus Capital Management with a bit of a whimper on Friday. Shares opened in New York at $15.50 each, having priced at $16, below the targeted range of $18 to $20. The stock never recovered from the shrunken public offering, ending the day down over 3%. Ahead of the market close, we spoke with Albertson's president and CEO, Vivek Sankaran, and started by asking about going public in such volatile markets. Uh, you're right. Uh, the volatility is, um, I mean, none of us can predict what's going to happen but we are so centered on the long term. As you know, our investors have been with us since 2006, uh, have helped build this company and strengthen it. We have momentum in the business and uh, we just felt the time was right. And when you have a long-term perspective, uh, we're not, we, while I look at the ticker, uh, I've been looking at it all day. I also recognize that we're building a company and strengthening this company to deliver value over many, many years. Talk to us about strengthening the company, building the company. There are many that might say, look, e-commerce needs to get better. What about expansion plans in terms of ensuring that you maintain and grow that market share that you already have? Yeah, no question about that. Uh, we came together as Albertsons and Safeway in 2015. And the first few years was focused on integration, putting common systems in place and such. And then we switched to transforming the company. And transforming the company is all about putting new technologies. Um, and one of those is uh, our omni-channel solutions. And we go to the, we give the customer many choices. You can pick it up in our store, we deliver it with our own trucks, deliver it with third parties, et cetera. And we continue to expand it. We, we think there's plenty of headroom. It's important to recognize that it's all in the early innings for all of us in the industry. And there's so much learning, so much piloting going on. Um, and that, that's one element uh, of uh, strengthening the company but there's also strengthening the company's day-to-day -day operations with technology. So we become more efficient, even in the stores where we do a lot of our business. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned Safeway, obviously uh, uh, the big combination there, but I mean, under the Albertsons uh, umbrella, Vivek, I mean, you've got a lot of uh, different brands, obviously Albertsons, Safeway, Acme, Jewel Osco, which I grew up uh, on. I didn't even realize it was part of uh, Albertsons uh, now, a, a great uh, grocery store, by the way. Uh, I am curious, though, how seamless is it going to be for customers who want to use uh, an Albertson app or use some sort of uh, online delivery system from Albertsons if they're jumping maybe from city to city or from a different uh, grocery brand to grocery brand? Remain, the first thing to recognize is these brands have been around for so long. Like you just said, Jill Osco is a household name in Chicago. Tom Thumb is a household name in Dallas. So we're proud of those banners. And those banners mean a lot to people. And they all have this little nuance that's a little different uh, that's tailored for that uh, customer. When it comes to our e-commerce applications, our loyalty applications, you'll see the back end is the same. The front end is different. So you feel like you're on Tom Thumb, but you're on the same infrastructure. Uh, when you move from 
uh, city to city, you carry your loyalty points. Now, and with you carry carry everything that you bought, all the data we carry with you. We're working on making those interfaces even better. It's a big part of our agenda. You know, that never stops. We're always trying to figure out how to make it easier for you to navigate and order with us. Uh, it's, a, it's a journey that never ends. And we can put more energy into it. Our analysis shows a debt load of almost $9 billion. Grocery stores notorious for just being a very low margin business. In the middle of a pandemic, how do you think about boosting margins and reducing that debt burden? Uh, our debt load is now 2.4 times our EBITDA, uh, which is a, is a good place to be. Our, our program is continuing to continue to reduce that from the cash flows um, that we get. It used to be much higher. It used to be more like four times EBITDA, and we brought that down significantly over the years. Uh, and so we're, we're not debt constrained. We're not capital constrained. Let me put it that way. And we can take a very measured approach to pay that down and then get to the right balance of uh, debt and equity to fund the company. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.